All right. Everybody grab a seat. Pretty much every one of you knows. My name's Josh. Uh, uh, it's an honor to be here again to bring the Word of God to you all today. Um, I know a lot of times when we start off, you know, one of us has a story that we want to say to kind of uh, get everything going. I don't have one. So what we're going to do instead is I want to start off by offering a question to you all that I'm, I'm sure either you have wrestled with or maybe someone in your life has asked you, and it's this. If your God is so good, why did he wipe out all of the men, women, and children in the world with the flood? A very lighthearted question, but let's be honest here. None of you want to be asked this question. It's not a fun question for me to be asked either. Because the Bible's full of things our world does not like at all. And I think as we, we as Christians, we can also have a hard time wrapping our head around this as well. But while we can wrestle, we should never be ashamed of who God is, what he declares and what he's done. Especially when, you know, people compare, we sometimes compare the uh, Old Testament God to Jesus, and we have these characterized versions of them where the God of the Old Testament is all anger, wrath, and vengeance, and the caricaturized version of Jesus is the luscious Maybelline hair, uh, and a big sheep over his shoulder carrying it down the street. But our culture sees this flood story as a black eye of sorts concerning God. Uh, some act like God made a mistake here, and then with the covenant that we're going to read about uh, in a little bit, that uh, he's apologizing for it or whatever. But God does not make any kind of mistake. If we as rebellious human beings think that he was in the wrong, we should probably really reevaluate our authority on morality. God's the perfect judge who had the, the right to judge every man, woman, and child of the flood as he saw fit. And if we were in that same position, he would have had the same right to do that with us as well. Now, this probably sounds really scary, especially with the understanding today that those who do not know God are separated from him eternally. However, I hope we can trust in and find comfort in uh, the fact that the righteous judge judges righteously. I hope we can also see the grace in this flood account too. Uh, because what we're going to see in a little bit is not just the flood. We're going to see what happens after the flood and the covenant that God makes with Noah. And so taking all this into account, I really hope that today is a day that we can really think about the grace of God and just overall just give worship to God that he so desperately deserves. And so I, I kind of have a, a call to action, if you will. It's the same thing as the main idea, basically. It's remembering the sovereign grace of God. Remembering the sovereign grace of God. The grace that God alone chooses to demonstrate towards the rebels that we are. We take this far too lightly in our culture today. And I really hope that by the end of today, we're able just to, in glorious worship, just give it all to the Lord. Now, to observe this spectacularly in the scriptures, we're going to observe Noah's exit from the ark so, uh, and God's covenant with him. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 8, verses 20. Oh, verse 20, and then we're going to go to Genesis 9, uh, 17. So go ahead and get your Bibles out, and I will begin. We're just going to read the first couple of verses. So starting with Genesis 8, verses 20 to 22. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled 
the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. And so overall, why should we remember God's sovereign grace? Here's the first reason. It's, it's point number one is this. In his sovereign grace, God withholds judgment. In his sovereign grace, God withholds judgment. Who is this that the wind and the sea obey him? The, the disciples asked this after Jesus calmed a storm in the Gospel of Matthew uh, chapter 8, verses 23 to 27. Jesus and the disciples were at sea uh, when a furious storm came in. And there was a great fear amongst all that were on board the ship, except for Jesus, who was just napping. Imagine having like such power that during a time like that where everyone around you is in crisis, you're just napping. But let's compare this, this, this account to, uh, I know Buzz, I think, talked about this last week, the Epic of Gilgamesh. It is another flood account. Um, it is one of the many flood accounts across the world. This one um, was by the Babylonian people. Now, unlike the flood account that we have in Genesis and, and this instance of Jesus controlling the elements, what we see in the Babylonian flood account is that the Babylonian gods, they created this flood, but then they were overwhelmed by it and they couldn't stop the thing that they started. And so you can't tell me with a straight face that all gods are the same for this reason alone. Now in the Bible, we see God exercising complete and utter control over the elements, first with the flood and now with the restraining of the flood. And focusing on Noah for a second, after the cataclysmic flood that he just went through, the first thing that he does when he gets off that ark is build an altar. This is the very first altar that scriptures have, the scriptures have recorded. There might be some implication that with Cain and Abel and they offered sacrifices that uh, maybe they had uh, an altar as well, but that's not clear. But he offers a sacrifice uh, using some of the clean animals that God uh, called him to hold onto on the ark, as a burnt, and he uses them as a burnt offering. And with God being pleased by this aroma that we just read, it, we, we see again Noah's name meaning rest, and we see that uh, we see it's, it's almost a callback to uh, what Lamech, Noah's father, says in Genesis 5 29, where he says, and he will comfort us in the labor and painful toil of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. And so this theme of Noah bringing rest returns. And while we see Noah fall next week, like praise the Lord that he knew what to do in that instance. I, I, I don't know the last time that after something big happened, the first thing I did was fall into worship. You know, with Noah, that was the first thing that he did when he got off the ark was he worshiped. We can't even think to, when we get up, out of our beds, we don't, we don't even wake up thanking God for the day immediately. And the first thing that we do is we pull out one of these things. And in my case, we play the Daily Wordle. Um, but all of this is brought up to demonstrate that, like Noah, we're called to worship because of this. The Lord makes the promise to never enact a judgment on the world via a cataclysmic flood or judgment on the world uh, as long as the earth stands. And we can rely on the world to operate as it is 
because of God, because God is in complete control. By his sovereignty, God withholds some of his judgment. We should, we should be in awe of this because, you know, God is controlling the elements for the sake of us. The world doesn't control itself. It's not its own separate, um, separated from God entity. Um, it's not a deity of any kind. It is simply creation. And God, the, nothing on this earth operates without the will of God. And in all of that control, seeing everything that you and I have ever done and all that the ancient peoples have ever done, God demonstrated undeserved grace. Another good example of this that we see is in 2 Peter 2.9, uh, where the apostle Peter says the following. He says, If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. But not only did God withhold this judgment, he also chose a people. And so let's continue back in the beginning of Genesis 9, and we're going to see how that unfolds. Picking up in verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. We'll stop right there. So why should we rejoice in the sovereign grace of God? Here's point number two. Here's reason number two. In his sovereignty, God chose us. God chose us. Going back to that Babylonian uh, epic of Gilgamesh, uh, it concludes with this idea that overpopulation is man's biggest problem. Yet the biblical story takes the opposite approach and goes a little bit further with it even. Not only does God allow for a remnant to remain through the flood, but he asks he asks Noah and his family to repopulate the earth again, even though we just saw in Genesis 8.21 that God is aware that man's heart is, and this is directly from the verse, evil from its youth. Evil from its youth. And additionally, we even see going all the way back to Genesis 6, God observes that the earth was filled with wicked people and all kinds of violence and sin. But God is still faithful to that command he made in Genesis 1.28, the idea of being fruitful and multiplying. He made that command with Adam and Eve, and he's still faithful to it, despite every ounce of rebellion that has existed to this point. Now, there is this repetition we see in the, in the section that we just read of uh, the command of Genesis 1, but there's also some slight differences in some of the stuff that follows. First of all, God replaces the idea of exercising dominion over the animals with the idea that they will fear and dread men. This is no doubt a consequence of the brokenness that man has allowed in this world. And he also makes it clear when eating animals that the blood is to not be consumed. Blood is considered the life force of an animal, and therefore it's sacred. And then yet, God views our lives and our life forces, our, our blood, in such a higher esteem 
allowing man to continue to rule despite the brokenness we have contributed to. And why is God doing this? It's because he has a special love for humanity. We're made in his image, and that's where we find our value. Um, D. Stuart Briscoe, in his commentary, he says the following. I think this is an excellent quote, especially that last sentence. Um, He says the following. Man has always displayed an innate sense of his own worth. He resolutely insists on being treated properly and consistently speaks of his high view of himself. But man's reasons for this sense of his own dignity have not always been valid. It is only in his relationship to God through creation, commission, and covenant that man has the right to regard himself as uniquely worthy of respect. And this is, this is the one that gets me in the feels a little bit. It is only in terms of deity that man finds dignity. It's only in terms of deity that man finds dignity. Because of God's grace and his love for humans and how we're, as God's image bearers, his representatives, he has this tremendous love for us. And we see that today with the person of Jesus where our slate is wiped clean. And we see that because of his grace and love, he values human life tremendously high, higher than all, of other crea- all the other creation. Uh, reading verse 6 again, this is how much he, he, he values it. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Now, this, reading that verse again, I, I have no doubt that some of you are wondering, there, there is an important question that we need to ask here, is that, in verse 6, is God insinuating some sort of capital punishment? And in the case of one person intentionally murdering another, it definitely is. And I know this is really hard for us to wrap our heads around, believe me, I struggle with it too. Um, There's a ton of layers to go through with that, especially with a culture that is so complex um, and, but if you would like, I can give you guys some resources for that as well that have really helped me to process through a lot of that. But I bring all this up to show that this, this punishment is initiated because God values human life so highly. Taking the life of someone in the image of God is one of the most vile things as human beings that we can do because of the sacredness of, of how God made us. And Gordon Wenham, in his commentary, he says the following. He says, It is because of man's special status among the creatures that this verse insists on the death penalty for murder. And again, I understand it's incredibly hard, but... Search the scriptures, and I have some things for you that you're welcome to look at if you'd like. Um, But again, I bring all this up because life is sacred to God. And that's why the punishment is so severe, to avoid that tremendous evil. God has a tremendous love for us, but he also has great hatred for sinful rebellion, which leads us to our final point. So uh, we're going to finish Genesis 9. We're going to go up to verse 17, and then we'll finish off for the day. So starting from verse 8. Tiny font, give me a second. There we go. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by water, the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud 
and that shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. And when the bow is in the clouds, I will see, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. And so, with our final reason why we need to rejoice in the sovereignty, the sovereign grace of our God, this is reason number three. In his sovereignty, God himself initiates the grace. He initiates the grace. When we think of the idea of giving people grace, a lot of times we, we do this because we say, okay, I see the good in you. I see that, you know, you, you can change your life around. And, you know, there's, there's, you know, good intentions there. But God's grace is not conditional to us based on our works. If we, if we did, we would never, like, if, if it was based on us being able to prove ourselves to God, we'd be like that. And I think we all have that friend who, you know, you you give him some money to borrow and you anticipate him, he's going to pay it back, but he never does. I, I, I've had some friends like that. But it's, it's, it's a lot like that. And we even see in a Romans 3, 10 to 12, Paul, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. And because of this, God's grace is beyond any kind of works that we can do. And we see God's grace through covenants. Uh, and a lot of times when we see covenants in the Bible, they can be uh, uh, a little bit confusing. But what we see in uh, these covenants are instances where there's an agreement between two parties. That's what a covenant is. Wayne Grudem, again, he, defi- he defines a covenant as the following. He calls it an unchangeable divinely imposed legal agreement between God and man that stipulates the conditions of their relationship. Unchangeable, divinely imposed. And when we see covenants in the ancient Near East, there's always a greater and a lesser party. You know, with God's covenant with Moses, uh, he promises Moses that Israel will be a holy nation if they keep the law and remember the God that brought them out of Egypt. And with this covenant that we see, we see significant differences specifically Uh, I'm referring to the covenant with Noah. With God's covenant with Noah, God is making a covenant with all of humanity. And additionally with covenants, there are signs, promises, and conditions. The sign in this case is the rainbow. When we look upon the rainbow, do we see the promise of God never filling the earth with a flood again? And it's a beautiful sign because Pastor Vodi Bakum describes the sign as in the following way, he says, it's a visible, universal, and unchanging sign. It is something that we can still see and rejoice in today. The promise is no more flood to destroy the earth. Pretty straightforward. And then we get to the conditions. With the, going back to the Mosaic covenant, with Moses' covenant, the Israelites had to remember their God, his laws, and what he did for them leading them out of Egypt. With the covenant with Noah, God's bringing the clouds, God will bring the rainbow, and God does the remembering. This is called a, 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 it's a one-sided, it's an unconditional covenant. 
unconditional. Noah and his sons never asked for this. It was 100% initiated by God. Charles Spurgeon, when he preached on this section of Scripture, he illustrated God's love with the rainbow so perfectly. He says the following. It's a very long section of uh, his sermon, so bear with me. Beloved, there is this about Noah's covenant and about the covenant of grace that it does not depend in any degree at all upon man. For if you will notice, the bow is put in the cloud, but it does not say, and when ye shall look upon the bow and ye shall remember my covenant, then I will destroy the earth. But it gloriously put not upon our memory, which is fickle and frail, but upon God's memory, which is infinite and immutable. The bow shall be in the cloud, and I will look upon it that I, rem- that I may remember the everlasting covenant. Oh, it is not my remembering God. It is God's remembering me. It is not my laying hold of this covenant, but his covenant laying hold on me. Glory be to God. God remembers us. He remembers us. And we don't take this seriously enough. I, I, I know, uh, thinking a little bit about my hometown for a second, we have, we have, we, my hometown has, uh, has had uh, a football player that uh, went to the NFL. And uh, he, was, he was pretty good, but he, he, like, he made a really great play in the Super Bowl, and we threw him a parade in our hometown, which you know, was a very nice gesture for him. Yet the God who made us knows us more intimately than that guy and expressed tremendous divine grace to us, first of all with this, and second of all with his son. Like we see, like this is the God we have, and we just sit around like it's another Tuesday. Why are we so complacent with God's love and grace? We take it way too for granted. If we're at a point where we're just like, oh yeah, Jesus, like, you know, he he died for my sins, that's cool. And we just kind of like, we're not, there's no like rejoicing in that. Like, why are we being complacent about this? This is not something that we can be complacent about. This is the thing that saves people from eternal separation from the Lord. Now, to wrap us up, God's wrath and race, wrath and grace, work together in an amazing way. When we look at the rainbow, we remember that God will never flood the earth again. We also need to remember that he did flood the earth once before. We see God's righteous judgment and should rightly, in a healthy way, have that fear of the Lord in us. But we can also rejoice in that precious grace that he gives, not just with the rainbow, however. I I don't deserve it, and neither do you guys. But Jesus Christ is God's greater rainbow. What we see with the rainbow is God withholding his judgment and with Christ, God the Father, when, when Christ was on that cross, God the Father pours out the wrath that we deserve on his Son. And I have a lot in my life I'm, to be, I, I, I'm ashamed of. And to truly understand this gospel hope we have, this is something I think I've encouraged us to do before, um, but I take a lot of the moments I still wrestle with forgiving myself for, and I chew on them for a little bit. And I, then I see what God says about them. I think about how when I was a kid, uh, I would get pretty physical with my brother. When we were kids and I would pin him, I would, you know, even threaten him. I think about how when I was in a college and I was a, a new Christian 
I was very hypocritical and immature. I'd make a lot of posts about God on social media, got the God first stuff in the bio, and then I would objectify women in my life. I think about how I called a high school friend of mine something incredibly vile behind their back. And that somehow made its way to them. And those are just the beginning for me. But when I remember those moments, I remember the gospel. I remember the gospel because I have failed, sinned, and I deserve judgment. But in Charles Spurgeon, again, he says the following. He says, Beloved, Christ is vengeance satisfied. Is vengeance satisfied. So here's some things that we need to assess when it comes to remembering this grace that we have in Jesus Christ. We're going to worship in a little bit. When we worship, don't just sing, don't just read, worship. Worship. Think about the, the, the God who has saved your soul because of his un- incomprehensible love. When we take communion in a little bit, think about you know, the bread and the, and the juice and how uh, those remind us of Christ shedding his blood and breaking his body for us. Don't be complacent in this. This is not something to be taken for granted. This is the God who deserves all the glory and splendor, and we're not giving it to him, and he's still loving us anyway. If you guys haven't made that decision yet to repent and turn to him, please turn to that and do not hesitate. And if you are a Christian, do not be a sleepy Christian. Make, get, get to that place where you are just in awe and full splendor of the God that we have because otherwise you're just wasting your time. And so with that, as the band comes up, I will pray us out. And I really hope that this is just a time where we can just, with every, everything that we're ashamed of, remember that Christ paid it all. And so with that being said, I'll pray us out. Lord God, you are good, you are faithful, and I, I, I don't deserve your grace. No one else here does. We, we don't deserve it. We rebel against you every single day of our lives. We tell you you're not good enough and that we can do better. We, we say that, um, that you are not enough. And we, and we know that's not true. But we still act differently every day. Thank you that despite that, thank you for the, even though we are the unfaithful bride as the church, Lord, that you are still, you, you love us so much. And we just pray that you will just continue to humble our hearts, grow us in you, and give us an opportunity for glorious worship uh, of you, Lord. Thank you for your Son. Thank you for our Savior. And thank you for the Holy Spirit for transforming us inside. Lord, we love you. We praise you. Amen.